Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banner Podcast, where birders talk birding. Sometimes I have guests on who are scientists, and science for me has always been interesting. I loved science in high school. I was a chemistry major in college, uh, became a physician, and so science has a special place in my heart. And talking with scientists who are really interested in birds and doing bird science research ornithologists, essentially, uh, is really cool for me. And some of my guests are along that path in various stages. My guest today, Jordan Borsma, is a PhD student at WSU in Pullman and is doing research on white-shouldered fairy wrens in Papua New Guinea. So cool place, Papua New Guinea. Very cool. He has some great stories to tell about that. But towards the end of the podcast, we start talking about some of the work he's done with gray-crowned rosy finches eating ice worms on the glaciers on Mount Rainier. And that brought back such cool memories to me of the episode I did with Peter Wimberger. Peter is a University of Puget Sound professor and has done a lot of work with ice worms. I had never heard of an ice worm before I talked to Peter. And after talking with Jordan today, I just had to figure out a little bit about these ice worms. Well, Jordan had some uh, little tidbits of information that turn out to be spot on, of course. Ice worms are worms. They're about 15 millimeters long and a half a millimeter wide and come to the surface of glaciers late in the day. Turns out that probably the reason they come to the surface late in the afternoon is because they cannot tolerate exposure to temperatures above 5 degrees centigrade or very much below zero. Uh, and so they live in the ice, which is obviously essentially by definition at zero degrees centigrade, come out late in the afternoon so they don't get too much exposure to the sun and uh, feed on the surface probably during the night. Uh, but before it gets real cold, go back down into the ice uh, because they can't tolerate much below freezing weather either. And so these are really incredibly cool organisms. Uh, not much is known about them. Peter Wimberger's doing some research on them. It sounds like other people are too. Great frowned rosy finches, it seems like, probably use them as a source of lipid and protein in feeding their chicks. Uh, and so, cool stuff. I really have to say, I did not know much about ice worms, and I know a little bit more. The other thing that came up during this episode was work in places where uh, close cooperation with the native people is super important, and Papua New Guinea is a place like that. So Jordan has had a lot of logistic and hands-on experience uh, working with local farmers and local landowners to be able to use their fields for his research on fairy wrens. And I thought it would be great for him to hook up with Peter Hodum. Well, I gave him Peter Hodum's contact information. Hopefully that is okay with Peter Hodum. He's a super nice guy. I can't imagine that it won't be. But I uh, sent an email off right after the episode saying, this is what I did. Hope it's okay. Anyway, uh, Peter Hodum, uh, my guest on episode 70, has been doing work on the Juan Fernandez Islands off the coast of Chile on indigenous species there, some endemic uh, species there, and some other species, and has had a huge amount of effort and enjoyment and time working with native populations there, providing work for them, providing careers for uh, some of the local people, uh, working with uh, fishermen and youth in those areas to provide incentive and opportunity uh, to continue with education and 
employment. Uh, so I thought that that would be a great resource for Jordan in terms of being able to try to develop those sorts of uh, relationships and skill sets in Papua New Guinea if he wants to continue his work there, which is, is part of his stated objective. So hopefully that will work out really well. Well, anyway, I had so much fun talking with Jordan today. I learned a lot, uh, and as always, talking to smart people about things they're passionate about that I also have an interest on doesn't get a lot better than that. So help me welcome Jordan Borsma to the Bird Banner Podcast, episode number 97. Jordan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being on with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, Jordan, I heard for about you from Peter Wimberger. He's been my my best source of guests lately. Uh, Neil was uh, my guest the last episode, and he uh, suggested Neil, and here we go. So that's exciting. Uh, I'm going to get us started uh, right off the bat by the exciting stuff. You are doing research on birds in Papua New Guinea. My goodness, what a place to go travel to and to, to bird and do research. Tell me about that whole story. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm pretty fortunate to be able to work in such a, an exotic location. So I I was actually supposed to I was sort of slated to work in Australia on redback fairy wrens. So I was a, a field technician on uh, a job there. Uh, one season came back to Australia to to lead a, a a project for a graduate student. A fire ripped through our site right in the middle um, and destroyed this experiment I was doing for him. So that was then you know from the ashes of that fire sort of designed this. Uh, experiment, this natural experiment, taking advantage of uh, this unfortunate um, fire that ripped through our field site to sort of quantify how the birds were responding to to the fire. And so that led me ultimately to Washington State, where I am now as a graduate student, because I had to do some lab work for that project. I was measuring testosterone and corticosterone, um, two hormones that we were interested in. And yeah, so I started in the lab here. The, my, my advisor here was part of this collaborative project that included some people who were working in New Guinea on another fairy wren species there. And I was eventually able to convince him to let me go to New Guinea. I just wanted a, a new adventure. You know, I, I'd sort of used bird research as a way to kind of explore the world. And starting graduate school, I wanted to, you know, start kind of a new challenge in, in an exotic location in New Guinea. I mean, it's hard to beat New Guinea for that sort of experience. For sure. So yeah, I, I was lucky that that he was he was willing to support me going there and um, teamed up with some some researchers at Tulane who were already starting to study a fairy wren species there. Okay. Um, so that's that's how it all got started. So fairy wrens. That is, I mean, I don't know what I think of when I think of, I looked it up on you know the internet, so I know what a fairy wren looks like. But sounds kind of cool, fairy wren. That's a cool name. How did they get that name? Yeah, I actually don't know. Who named them fairy wrens? Uh, you know, they're really tiny birds, as you can probably imagine based on the name. You know, they're, they're not they're not technically wrens; they're their own family of, of birds. Um, but you know, they are they're tiny, really colorful, typically um, birds that mostly inhabit like open grassland savanna habitat. There are some species in New Guinea that that are inhabiting mostly closed habitats, forests. Um, but typically they're out in the grassland and because the males tend to be especially colorful as they're flying around in the grassland, it's just, yeah, it's the most obvious bird around <laughs> because they're just glowing as they, as they fly through these open habitats. Very cool. So tell us about the work you're doing with white-shouldered fairy wrens. Yeah. So we started studying the white-shouldered fairy wren. And when I say we, I mean, uh, there, there's a professor with some graduate students um, at Tulane University named Jordan Krubian and he started working with them because we're trying to understand the 
causes and consequences of, of female ornamentation. So, you know, males tend to be the more colorful um, species, obviously, in, in birds, mm-hmm. um, or the co- more colorful sex, I, I should say, across species. And in white-shouldered fairy wrens, it's interesting because females vary in ornamentation across subspecies. Okay. So they're not super colorful. They're, they're black and white, but they have this really contrasting black and white plumage that, again, in these open habitats, it's, you know, kind of makes them stick out as they're flying around. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so there, there are some populations where females are just kind of drab, brown, cryptic, and, and other populations where the females are black and white, very similarly to, to the males. Hmm. And so we were trying to understand how this transition um, happened, you know, sort of in real time, because it's still just one species that's showing this variation and what facilitated that transition um, and what it's associated with. So a lot of behavior oriented projects and trying to understand if testosterone is maybe mediating these differences. So that's especially what I've been tunneling in for my dissertation. Okay. Are you learning anything yet? Have you figured anything out? Yeah. So so far, what we've determined, so we first determined that ornamented females do have higher testosterone than unornamented females. They also are more aggressive in defending their territories. So that kind of gave us some hints that perhaps testosterone is mediating these traits that like it does often in, in male songbird species. And so I actually gave some unornamented females elevated testosterone. I use these tiny uh, beeswax and peanut oil implants. Mm-hmm. Do you make your own or do you, can you get those? <laughs> uh, made, made my own. And it, yeah, it's one of the more arduous things I've had to do in, in grad school. I've done I it a, a couple of times now, uh, right before the field season, these really late nights, just slowly crafting these tiny implants. You know, we're talking about the size of a, an uncooked grain of, of rice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you want to make sure all of them are the same size because that way, you know, you're giving the consistent the dose. Same, sure. Yeah. So it's, it's frankly, yeah, a bit of a nightmare to prepare these things, but once you have them prepared, they're really handy because it's a really easy way to manipulate testosterone without, you know, harming the bird. And, and what we found is that after giving these unornamented females elevated testosterone, mm-hmm. they produce these, these white shoulder patches, okay. um, which typically that they're, they're never expressing any sort of white um, feathers. And then once they had these white shoulder patches, they actually became a little bit more territorial than birds who were given testosterone or control implants that didn't develop white shoulder patches. So there are a few that got testosterone and didn't produce these white shoulder patches. We don't know exactly why, but those that did were, were more aggressive in defending their territory. So it seems that, you know, these shoulder patches are probably acting as a signal in competition for territories, you know, specifically. Hmm. Very cool. I mean, talk about obscure research. Holy mackerel. That is out there. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's yeah. been a, it's been a fun thing to to tunnel into for sure. I bet it is. Is your thought, I don't know if it's really call it a hypothesis is, is reasonable, but is your thought that this may be a characteristic that uh, transcends species that other species may, it may come to be that other species, uh, female ornamentation for the word you're using is also uh, testosterone related. Yeah, that's, that's exactly why, you know, we embarked on this uh, research is that for, for, you know, over a century, basically of, of studies of, of male birds, we, we really just focused on, on these really elaborately colored males um, and sort of ignored females who are often varying in, in ornamentation as well. 
And, you know, we associate testosterone with being more masculine. So there's not really a lot of studies uh, of, of testosterone in female birds, at least not until recently, mm-hmm. um, whether or not it could be mediating the same types of traits that it does in males and females as well. Right. Um, so we're just starting to, you know, start starting to get a, a clearer picture of whether or not testosterone is is doing the same things that it does in males and, and female animals. Do you have a feel for whether the added testosterone affects reproductive capacity for these females? Are they still able to lay eggs and make babies okay? Yeah, we have a really incomplete understanding of of breeding in this species in general. So what I can say is a, a, a few of the females did end up nesting after giving given testosterone. And we don't have enough data to, to really do any robust comparisons, but I think one or two of those um, individuals laid just one or I think just one egg, um, mm-hmm. which is pretty atypical. So normally they lay three eggs. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's probably affecting their ability to to produce eggs. Um, sure. Again, in, in, in the short term, because it's only elevating testosterone oh. for about two to three weeks. Sure. And then they would go back to normal. But this is one of the difficulties with working with a species is they they nest around the year because it's a, a tropical species. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there there are periods where they probably breed more consistently than than others, right? But we still haven't you know fully picked up on when they breed and when they do not breed. We just know that they can really breed any time, and they tend to not want to breed when we're around. Which is <laughs> fancy been, that, yeah. yeah, exactly. So we've that that's been one of our one of our struggles for sure. We actually, my first year in New Guinea, we between me and my collaborator Eric, uh, we basically had a continuous year where one of us was in the field and the goal was to kind of pick up on the, the seasonal patterns of, of the species, if there are any at all. And of course that was the, one of the, the worst droughts on record for New Guinea. So everything just went haywire. Um, the birds were acting unusual. Nothing tried to reproduce, but normally I'm guessing. Ex- exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we didn't learn so much about, um, you know, typical seasonal patterns. What we could say is that drought, you know, probably is suppressing breeding, which is, you know, not exactly a, a shocking finding. Probably not something you can publish as your PhD uh, dissertation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Doesn't sound earth shattering to me. <laughs> Do you, this is, uh, I suspect this will be, you have no idea answer to, but uh, do you, do you think, or does it seem like the females that are more brightly ornamented that have more of the white shoulder patch, are they more favorably chosen as mates or do they not? Uh, how does that work? Do you have any idea? Yeah, this is, this is another thing that we had hoped to do. And my collaborator, Eric actually tried to do this in 2016, but, but had some, some challenges with keeping them in captivity. Mm. Uh, so because these are, you know, small insectivorous birds, it can be really difficult to, you know, keep them happy in captivity, it's it's easier with you know a granivore that you can just give seeds to. Sure, fairy wrens don't tend to do really great in captivity, so he he aborted that experiment pretty early on um, before birds were you know starting to be harmed by it. Um, sure. So yeah, un- unfortunately that it's it's been something that we've talked about trying a couple times and had one false start, and it's perhaps we can find a way to do it better in the future. One of the issues that we face there is. You know, doing some of this really experimental work is is tough because just living there in general can be pretty tough. You know, there's no running water or electricity. 
and a lot of challenges just sort of getting from point A to point B because there aren't so many roads in a lot of places. So oftentimes we have to take boats. So, you know, transporting birds can be really tough if we want to keep them in captivity. Yeah, just a lot of logistical challenges with with working in a, in a place like New Guinea. But it's definitely, definitely worth it. I, I had guessed that. That leads into what is what is birding like in Papua New Guinea? First of all, you are you a pretty avid birder in addition to a, a, a ornithology sort of scientist, or are you not that avid in birding? Yeah, it depends on who you ask, right? So, you know, if I compare myself to who I see as really avid birders, then I don't feel like I'm a, a, a very avid birder. But certainly my parents, who who also like birds quite a lot, they see me as a, as a crazy birder uh, because I have gone on, you know, trips to remote places where my sole purpose is just to find, you know, particular species. Uh, I don't keep a life list because I, I worry about getting too uh, obsessive about it and too competitive okay. with myself and, and others. I, I'm a very competitive person. And so it, it's more fun for me just to, or more relaxing for me just to, you know, be happy with what I see and and have certain targets that I pursue. So I really like you know, having a particular species or a couple of species that are hard to, to find mm-hmm. and really just zeroing in on, on that challenge. So and birding in New Guinea is, is it's quite difficult uh, if you don't have a lot of money to spend. So as a graduate student, I haven't done too many birding specific trips. I've certainly, you know, obviously spent a lot of time um, seeing some, some pretty amazing bird species and it's something I'm interested in. But a lot of the the birding lodges there are, are quite expensive because oh. you know the only birders who are going to New Guinea are the ones who can afford you know typically to to fly to these remote locations, oftentimes chartering flights and getting to these eco lodges that are you know well off the grid, but you know have have systems in place to to offer some amenities um, to the the highest bidders. So yeah, it's it's tough to do on a shoestring, which is the kind of birding that I've that I've always done. Sure. You're at uh, WSU now, is that correct? Have, yeah. have you birded around campus at all or in that area? Yeah, I, I've birded a little bit around here, mostly my, my first year. Uh, and then first year or two, and then after a while, uh, there wasn't, there weren't many, too many new species for, for me to see. Mm-hmm. So it's become less of a pursuit of late. Um, but there's certainly still some, you know, some birds that will pass through that, that I can pick up that I haven't seen before. Um, so I might twitch those from time to time. Sure. Sure. Uh, have you been, uh, I, I got the feeling that you have, there's been a lot of cooperation between the various researchers in both Australia and New Guinea, and you help on other people's projects and they help on yours and that sort of thing. What, what other projects are going on in that area that you've been you know, associated with? Yeah. So I have been, yeah, collaborating with with folks in Australia um, to to work with the redback fairy wren still in some capacity because I I passed through Brisbane on my way to New Guinea and there's a, a field site there um, at Lake Samson Vale which is also a great birding location um, so I have some collaborators who are who are often based there at least during the field who are based in America and so that's been a good opportunity to continue to be involved in the research in Australia. But in, in New Guinea, a, a lot of that, um, so like I did an expedition recently that um, was sort of spurned by local reports of a potential new bird of paradise species. Oh, wow. Which, yeah, un- unfortunately, you know, we weren't able to find this species that locals were telling us about. 
Um, but basically the, the way this story goes is, you know, back in 2015, I traveled to this island called Ferguson Island off the uh, eastern um, part of, of New Guinea. And was just there to, to look at the, um, to try to find the, the two endemic birds of paradise. Um, there's a, a monocode species and then this uh, Goldie's bird of paradise, which is a lot like the Rajiana, which is one of the more common birds of paradise that's on their flag. And while we were looking for those birds, I was, you know, taking out my field guide and showing this to local people. And they were pointing to this, the bluebird of paradise in my field guide and saying, oh, we have something like this, but it's different in these ways. Like it's lacking these tail feathers. Um, and I, I did this then a couple of times. I would just open up my field guide and ask what people were seeing in their area. And people, a, a couple different groups of people independently said they were seeing this bird that looks like the bluebird of paradise which isn't supposed to be anywhere near this, this island. Hmm. Um, but again, it's just a little bit different. And so I always had it in the back of my mind that I wanted to come back and do an expedition to get up to these montane areas where these local hunters were saying that they, they had seen them before. And so that's, that's what we did. Um, and yeah, so we, we ended up spending a couple of weeks up at really like pretty high elevation on this island, a little bit over um, 1,000 meters. So we made a camp right around 1,000 meters. Mm-hmm. No one, including local people, uh, from what we're told, had explored this area before. And so we made our camp there and, and looked around for this bird. Um, we ended up finding some other species that hadn't been documented before on the island and also one that hadn't been documented for that entire archipelago. Um, so it was not a, a wasted trip by any means. But unfortunately, did not find this, you know, potential new bird of paradise. I, I sort of doubt at this point that it exists because there's, we there isn't too much left to explore there. There are some slightly higher elevations that, um, to go, but it, it would be such a, a surprise at this point to me if such a charismatic and, and loud bird is, you know, somehow escaping uh, detection after a couple of weeks at those elevations. It seems like it. Well, you know, even if you hadn't found some really cool birds, it sounds like it wouldn't have been a wasted trip. It sounds like a fabulous adventure. Yeah, I'd, I'd always wanted to do uh, more expeditionary research like that at some point. Um, you know, my, my research has kind of, you know, been oriented around physiology and behavior. And so that requires following up on individuals over time and really being based in one area and, you know, rigorously studying these, you know, subjects that you are, you know, manipulating in, in some capacity. So that didn't lend itself well to doing more expedition style research. So this was a, a great c- crash course for me with, with leading this, this trip to a remote and, and rugged location. Uh, it was, yeah, it was a great adventure. There was a lot of, a lot of very stressful situations, mostly just getting to this Island because the seas are so rough that the boats often capsize in between the mainland and this island. Ouch. And we were going during the worst time of year. It just so happened that, you know, that's when we had the time to do this expedition, that the trade winds were blowing and the seas were were especially rough. And so we were just riding these white-capped waves in this open-air dinghy. So, you know, no protection from the <laughs> elements, just, you know, constantly getting blasted with these waves. Uh, and in addition to that, there was a, a recent rash of, of piracy in the area as well. Um, so a number of pirates patrolling this bay and, you know, targeting boats that were moving slowly, which you have to move slowly when the seas are that rough mm-hmm. and stealing motors and forcing people to 
to jump out of the boat to to swim to shore and oh my goodness yeah so it was a lot to a lot to sort of manage for a first expedition so hopefully i can do another one in the future that is a little bit more straightforward uh and doesn't doesn't come with these issues with just you know starting the expedition it took us about a week or week and a half just to get to the point where we had boots on the ground you know hiking <laughs> up to these montane areas that we wanted to access Oh my goodness, that's an adventure. That is an adventure. Nice stuff, Jordan. You are rocking it there. Uh, so I'm going to switch a little bit. You're in your PhD now. How did how did you come to decide to be a, a bird research oriented scientist? And how you know how did that all evolve? Did you were you pretty set on that as a kid, or did that come about through your education? Go through that story. Yeah, so I was always fascinated with animals as a kid. I I just remember, you know, so I grew up in West Michigan and there are some good birds in, in West Michigan for sure. But as far as, you know, charismatic megafauna, which, you know, a lot of kids, of course, are are interested in, there weren't too many opportunities for that. So when I first started traveling out West with my family, so we would take uh, like two week vacations every summer where we would drive from Michigan out to the mountains. I was just really taken with well, mountains, <laughs> frankly, um, but also just the ability to get really close to wild animals, you know, in some cases way too close. I was a, you know, a kid who was still learning exactly like where the, where the lines were. So I stressed out my parents, I think a number of times. Um, but I just felt compelled to, you know, follow animals around and learn about their behavior in particular. And so that, you know, lends itself really well to, to bird research in particular, because it's a lot easier to really follow a lot of behaviors in birds that that you wouldn't typically see in mammals, which you know, are often a lot more reclusive. Mm -hmm. So I ended up doing a, a, a bachelor's in wildlife biology at University of Montana. So I moved out there because I wanted to be closer to mountains and, and the animals that I was really interested in. And it just so happened that the first field job that I got was a bird job. And from there, it just sort of launched this career studying birds. So I, I learned that, you know, again, birds were great subjects for doing behavioral research, but what I also liked about it is you could, you know, do mist netting where you're actually handling the, the, the animal that you're studying. And there are all these things you can see with birds again, that you don't typically see with mammals. So I assisted with one mammal project in undergrad where we were hiking around the Tetons. So that was great because it was a beautiful location studying these large carnivores and that all sounds, you know, really sexy and, and like really charismatic stuff. Right. But the reality was that, you know, we were just picking up poop samples, um, as we were walking around, I never saw any of the animals that we were studying and, you know, it was still a great experience and I wouldn't mind, you know, doing that kind of work in, in some capacity, but I quickly discovered that birds were a lot more fun because they're constantly singing and yeah, showing, showing these behaviors that are really interesting and you can capture and, and handle them safely without stressing them out too much and um, learn a lot, a lot about their physiology and, and genetics. And yeah, it, it's, it's been a, yeah, a sort of a, a lifelong pursuit now to travel as much as possible and, and just, yeah, explore new locations and, and learn more about birds. So you weighed the pros and cons, studying animal scat or studying beautiful birds, animal scat, beautiful. Yeah, I'll go for the beautiful birds. Good, good choice. Exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, and as a kid, you know, I, 
I, I do recall with, with birds in particular, you know, trying to get really close to them by, you know, changing where the, the feeders were. I remember, you know, moving the hummingbird feeder so I could get closer to hummingbirds as they came mm-hmm. in. I remember, you know, sitting underneath a bird feeder and, and having a blanket over top of me and my friend. And then we put seeds on top of the blanket. So oh, yeah. the finches would land on us and we could see them really close up. Uh huh. So, yeah, you know, in retrospect, I guess I was always really interested in birds, but I, I had it in my mind that mammals were the way to go because, you know, everyone really loves large, large carnivores in particular. Yeah. But I'm glad that I, that I chose this bird route for sure. Well, good for you. So you went to uh, undergraduate school in uh, Montana, and now you're at, uh, at the University of Washington, West, Western Washington University, excuse me. Washington State University. Yeah. I'm sorry. That's, yeah. No, that's, that's that. okay. Yeah. Oh, my uh, cougar friends will be all over me about that. Bad, <laughs> bad move yeah. there, Ed. You know better than that. <laughs> Good. Yeah. And in, so in between, uh, so it, it took me a while to go from undergrad to graduate school. I always knew I wanted to go to graduate school. Um, and then I really had to go to graduate school to to make a, a good career out of, out of studying birds or, or wildlife in general. Um, so I was I was lucky because I went to the U- University of Montana. I didn't even know that there was that was a hotbed of, of avian research. But the first job I got was working in a lab that had a project in Montana that I was able to um, gain employment on. That this the same lab was also doing research in Malaysian Borneo, and so oh, wow. that's what. Yeah, after a couple years of working in Montana and showing that I knew how to do field work, particularly searching for nests. That got me an invite to to join this project in Borneo, and that is really you know what 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 led to this. Now, hopefully, you know, lifelong pursuit of of studying tropical birds in particular and having these these adventures in in the tropics. Very cool. Uh, so, where are you in this uh, research? I know PhDs. Uh, after talking uh, uh, with your friend Neil uh, recently, it sounds like PhDs can be. Uh, they don't, it's not like go to school for four years, graduate. So this sort of thing. It's you do your research and you develop a project that may take uh, variable amounts of time. Uh, where, where are you in that walk right now? So I am in my seventh year. Uh, okay. yeah, which still, it still just doesn't feel totally natural to say seventh year. It doesn't feel like I've been doing it for this long. Uh, so yes, they, they can certainly take a, a very long time. I have, I am living proof of that. And I have, you know, collaborators who have who have taken over seven years as well. It really depends on well, it depends on a lot of a lot of things. But one thing that has extended my timeline is I've spent so much time in New Guinea. And again, because logistically it's such a, a difficult place to work, you need a lot of time to to get established, to negotiate with landowners because everything is privately owned before you even, you know, get to start your research. And then some landowners might start to get upset, you know, that, that perhaps, you know, you're not, you know, that they want access to um, more resources from you. So, um, you know, we're very limited with, with the funding that we bring to these areas, but they tend to associate Westerners who come over there with, with resource extraction companies, which have, you know, very deep pockets and pay very handsomely. Mm-hmm. So we often have to sort of renegotiate terms of land use. We might lose access to an area for a little bit and then, you know, work with the landowners to, um, make it clear what we're able to do and what we can't, because we're doing everything we can to, you know, train local people and employ them on our projects. Mm-hmm. That's a big part of what our funding goes to, but it still is obviously a lot less than what, you know, say an oil palm company is going to bring or, 
a mine is going to bring to, to those landowners. Sure. So that that is one thing that takes a lot of time. And then just doing these experiments takes, you know, often several months. And then for me, on top of all of that, on top of all of the field time, all of the planning just to get into the field and negotiating or negotiating the terms of land use, but also getting all the permitting figured out in these different countries, uh, it, it also takes a lot of work on the back end, getting um, the, the samples assayed in the lab for, for testosterone. So mm-hmm. that's what I'm currently working on is several months of, of just tunneling into getting all my samples assessed for, for testosterone. So that is a, a lengthy a lengthy process after doing all of the the hard work of collecting the samples in the field and you know exporting them to to the U.S. So so, so it sounds like if if this uh, career in biology doesn't work out, you can be a logistics manager for huge projects. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I, I, but, but, bad joke. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, <it's, laughs> anyway, I mean seriously, it sounds like major logistical challenges just to get there, get things set up, negotiate with local, uh, local landowners. I mean, that's serious talent, uh, that's serious, uh, management work. Yeah. Mostly laughing in response to that because I, I actually think that I'm, I'm not that great at, at planning ahead. I tend to just sort of, you know, live in, in the present. So it's been a, a, a challenge to do this kind of work, but it also, you know, being someone who just responds to things as they happen, Mm-hmm. You also need to be able to do that in a place like New Guinea, which, you know, all the locals will will tell you there. It's the, the land of the unexpected, which is definitely true. And it's the land of the unexpected in a lot of good ways. You have these unexpected and amazing adventures, um, meet some of the you know kindest, most interesting people you'll ever meet. But then there's also, you know, just disastrous stuff that will happen. And you need to be able to just quickly, you know, develop a new plan and scrap everything that you were, you know, hoping to do previously. Mm-hmm. So that I think is sort of the, the main, the main skill that I, that I brought to this project initially was just, <laughs> for sure. okay, well, we can roll with the punches and, and just sort of make the best out of whatever situation is, is presented to us. Right. Very cool. Uh, so I, uh, when I talked to Neil, uh, he talked a little bit about some, uh, work on Rosie Finches with Peter uh, that he had collaborated or discussed with Peter Wimberger. It sounds like you've uh, been involved in that also. What, what's going on with that? Yeah, so this was a project that was just started, you know, by a, a really just a group of, of friends uh, who wanted to spend time in the mountains together and study this really cool bird, the, the rosy finch. Uh, so we have a friend, um, Scott Hotaling, who's been doing this work on Rainier to to quantify how many ice worms there are and and what what part of the or what role they play in, in the food web in glacial. On, on the Paradise Glacier on, on Mount Rainier. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a really understudied invertebrate. And what, what he discovered it was that, you know, gray crowned rosy finches were, were often feeding on these ice worms in the afternoons on the glacier. Because there's, you know, trillions of, of these things that, that rise up to the surface of the snow. Really? And it's just a, an easy, lipid-rich meal for, you know, the, the few bird species that are up there. Well, how big is an ice worm? I, I don't know much about ice worms. I, you know, is it like a little bitsy thing or is it a pretty big thing like a angleworm or what? Yeah, they're, they're pretty, they're pretty skinny, but they, you know, are typically, you know, about an inch to inch and a half. I am still, you know, pretty new to ice worms. I just saw them for the <laughs> first time, I guess a couple of summers ago. I've now gone up there a few times. 
they vary quite a, quite a bit in size, but yeah, they're they're pretty small. But what's what's mostly staggering is just how many of them there are once they come up to the surface. It just they just cover the the surface of the really? the glacier when you're up there in the afternoon, and so that's a big part of what we're trying to understand is how important are these ice worms for these these alpine nesting gray crown rosy finches because there there aren't a lot of other things to forage on up there, and no one before our friend Scott had you know, documented that, that rosy finches were, or any birds were, were eating these ice worms. So they could be, you know, really important for these alpine nesting rosy finches, especially for, you know, provisioning their young, because even though rosy finches are, you know, typically foraging on, on seeds, mm-hmm. um, species that are, that are foraging on seeds, they still need to find invertebrates to, to feed their, feed their young as they're developing. Right. And so rosy finches could be a huge part of that. Yeah. Or sorry, the ice worms. Ice worms could be a yeah. big, a big yeah. part of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> these are not cannibalistic both, rosy finches. Both, both ends, of, both ends of that story. Yeah, I learned yeah. about those first when I talked to Peter Wimberger. He's done uh, some work with ice worms. I don't know exactly what, but uh, he mentioned it to me, and I thought, "Wow, ice worms! Worms live in that ice. How do they get? By? You'd think they'd freeze, or you know, how, how do they even keep from? I mean, they're they're not warm blooded. How do they? Uh, how do they not just crystallize and become an ice cube?" <laughs> yeah, exactly. And how I, I, I know, so Scott has worked with the, the UV tolerance of these ice worms and, mm-hmm. and has discovered it. It seems that they are the most UV tolerant organism in the world. Really? I, I hope I'm getting that right. I'm pretty sure that is, I'm pretty sure that's right. If they're not the most, um, then they're certainly among the, the most UV tolerant organisms because they're, you know, spending a lot of time at the surface of the snow where you can imagine that there's just, you know, when the sun is out, they oh, are yeah. absorbing so much UV. Um, and obviously they're also very cold tolerant. They're the only, this is another thing where I'm sort of going out on a limb here, but I think they're the only, the only organism that spends their entire life cycle on ice as well. So there, it's a really unique, um, invertebrate that, you know, until recently wasn't the subject of, of many studies and could be really important for these birds. Yeah. Super cool. Goodness gracious. I uh, learn something every episode. I love it. Uh, so uh, when when you finish your PhD, and I'm assuming that's not too many years down the road, uh, what sort of career are you looking forward to? Yeah. So that, that's been sort of a, a, an evolving an evolving dream for the last few years is, you know, it's been hard to sort of find exactly what I wanted to do. But within the last year, it started to, to crystallize and um, at this point, I, I definitely want to pursue a, a career in academia and, you know, specifically to be a, a, a professor at a, a, a major research in, institute, mostly because I'm really invested in New Guinea in particular. And the, the people I've worked with there who have been so gracious to me and been so much fun to, to work with, there's just tremendous untapped potential in New Guinea, um, both in the, the organisms that live there that are, you know, notoriously understudied because they're they're hard to to, to get access to, but also in, in the people who are just, they're, they're all pretty much experts in, in their, their native fauna. Um, so if you arrive to a village for the first time and you scroll through your field guide with, with local people, particularly, uh, hunters, they can often tell you exactly, you know, what is in their area and even tell you about some historical patterns. So species that maybe used to be there that aren't there anymore. And they've, you know, really enjoy working on, on these, these bird related projects, um, because they take a lot of pride in the, the, the unique birds that are, that are there. And the formal employment, uh, 
percentage is is something around 10% the last time I checked in Papua New Guinea. So there's there's I sort of feel compelled to, you know, keep working there both because I love, you know, the 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 organisms there but to also do my part to sort of provide some some sustainable employment opportunities uh, because there are a lot of resource extraction companies that are starting to come to New Guinea and they offer landowners deals that often are really bad for the the landowners where, you know, they give up rights to their land and um, in exchange for just a a, a small short-term paycheck. And so there's a lot of interest with the local people to to do this kind of biological research long-term. There just aren't, you know, enough people who are really committing to doing that kind of work and, and training people. So, you know, I, what I really hope to do long-term is, is to start a, a research um, center, a field research center in, in Papua New Guinea so that I can, you know, increase my capacity to, to do work there and, and train and, and mentor local students. In addition to, you know, bringing some, some students over from, you know, whatever university I'm based at um, in whatever country, I'm, I'm really open to, to travel anywhere at this point to, to find the, the job that I'm looking for. Have you talked to Peter Hodum? Do you know Peter Hodum? Peter is a colleague of Peter Wimberger, the two Peters, at UPS. And he has for decades, maybe two or three decades, I don't know exactly how long, worked on uh, studying the birds, especially on some islands off the coast of Chile. And uh, has really, uh, I mean, the story you talk about wanting to be involved with the local peoples, wanting to develop sustainable uh, jobs and resources to them. I mean, that's exactly the sort of thing he's done as the research part of his uh, career. He's actually started a not-for-profit that helps fund that. And he would be just a, a, someone to pick his brain about how do you even go about making that sort of thing happen. So Peter Hodum. Peter Hodum. Yeah, I'm going to write yeah. that down. I haven't. I'll send, I'll send you his contact information. He he. Besides that, he is the smartest, nicest guy ever. He is brilliant and incredibly uh, eloquent in his ability to to present subjects and talks. I've heard him talk a couple of times. I had him on the podcast. He is an impressive guy. Uh, so you should definitely get a hold of Peter Hodum. Yeah, I would love to to talk to him. Certainly, getting more perspective on how to do that kind of work long-term because it's obviously difficult to source the funding for, for something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, most granting agencies aren't looking to fund, you know, building a, a research center mm-hmm. in, in areas like that. So that's a, yeah, it'd be great to, to speak with him. Yeah. He's, he'd be a real resource for you. Well, uh, Trin, thanks so much. That's really cool stuff. I wish you all the best in your endeavors and in wrapping up this research project that you're doing. Uh, how would, how would a listener get a hold of you if they wanted to reach out to you? What would be the best way? Yeah. So they can find me on Twitter if, if they're on Twitter. So at Jordan, J-O-R-D-A-N underscore Borsma, B as in boy, O-E-R-S-M-A. And also my email is jordan.borsma at gmail.com, also at wsu.edu. And yeah, if, if they want to follow the, the research, I'm on ResearchGate. I'm on Google Scholar. I now have a, a website that's jordanborsma.com. So I went from not being having any sort of online presence to being all over the place online within the last like year, year and a half or so. I actually, when I Googled your name, I found your website right off the bat. 
And I, that's how I knew some of these things by looking on the research gate and uh, Google research uh, tabs on the bottom of your website. So you're, you're it's rocking. Working. It. It's working. Great. Good stuff. Okay. Good stuff. Well, Jordan, thank you so much for being my guest today. I really appreciate it. And uh, all the best. All right. Thanks a lot, Ed. Well, that wraps up the Burr Banner podcast, episode number 97 with Jordan Borsma. Hope you enjoyed it. Please leave comments, uh, reviews, ratings on the uh, Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcast feeds. I love the feedback and enjoy communication in that regard. I'll also make sure I put up a blog post, as always, on the birdbender.com website where you can check out more information about ice worms, about Jordan Borsma's research, and uh, White Crown Fairy Runs, among other things. So hopefully you enjoyed. Thanks for listening. Until next time, good birding, good day. <laughs>